The Trump aide who allegedly hid boxes at Mar-a-Lago was in court today. The lead starts right now. Caught on tape, Donald Trump's right-hand man, Walt Nada, seen in surveillance video, according to the Justice Department. The boxes full of classified documents prosecutors say he moved and hid on Trump's property before the FBI arrived. This hour, former federal prosecutor turned 2024 Trump challenger, Chris Christie, is here with his reaction to all the latest trouble that Trump might be in. Then, a raid in Russia. The Kremlin sending their officers to sniff out Wagner mercenary group boss Yevgeny Prigozhin. Guns, cash, gold, even wigs found when the world thought that the mercenary chief had been hiding in Belarus. And federal charges brought against the man prosecutors said had weapons outside the Obama's D.C. home. See the social media post from Donald Trump that allegedly gave this man, a Trump superfan, the Obama's home address. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our law and justice lead, the unprecedented criminal charges against a former president for allegedly mishandling classified documents and today's not guilty plea from the aide accused of helping Trump hide those documents from the government. Walt Nauta appeared in a Miami courtroom earlier today after his first two hearings had been delayed. Nauta's appearance comes as we learn of a major development in a separate investigation into different alleged criminal behavior by Donald Trump. Former Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers tells CNN that he has met with the FBI about Trump's efforts to overturn the election in his state, Arizona, part of special counsel Jack Smith's January 6th investigation. Bowers, a conservative Republican, resisted pressure from Trump and his allies after Trump lost Arizona in 2020. CNN's Carla Suarez starts off our coverage from Miami. We also have with us in studio CNN's Paula Reed here in D.C. Carlos, let me start with Walt Nada's court hearing today. What happened in the courtroom and what comes next? Well, Jake, Walt Nada's arraignment was quick. The 40-year-old didn't say a word as he left a federal courthouse here in Miami. Nada was finally able to enter a plea in his case after finally scoring a South Florida-based attorney. His arraignment was, post- uh, was postponed twice because he couldn't find a local counsel Now, attorney Sasha Dadan was in court with Nada, along with his Washington, D.C.-based attorney. And uh, Dadan is a former public defender with a good amount of experience trying cases in South Florida. She has an office in Fort Pierce, and that's where Nada and former President Donald Trump's trial will take place. Now, Nada pleaded not guilty to obstruction charges and lying to investigators. Prosecutors say that Nada moved several boxes, dozens of boxes, with classified documents from a storage room at Trump's Mar-a-Lago property to other parts of that property, and that he lied about the entire thing. All of this, according to uh, prosecutors, was in an effort to try to keep one of Donald Trump's lawyers from finding some of these classified documents that had been subpoenaed by a grand jury. Now, Jake, according to a search warrant affidavit that was released yesterday, prosecutors said that they have surveillance video from Mar-a-Lago showing someone moving several boxes before the FBI searched the property. We believe that person to be Walt Nauta. All right. Thank you so much. And Paula, you've been closely following all of these different investigations into Donald Trump. There's already been two indictments. Who knows what's going to happen? We think there might be two more. What is the significance in the January 6th investigation by special counsel Jack Smith 
of Rusty Bowers, who was a former top Republican official in Arizona, meeting with the FBI as part of the 2020 election investigation. And one of the biggest differences between the Mar-a-Lago investigation and January 6th is just the breadth and depth of what they're investigating on the January 6th side. With Mar-a-Lago, we knew it was a pretty short list of people who could potentially be charged and a pretty short list of potential charges. But with January 6th, you have dozens of people who could face possible criminal charges and at least half a dozen possible charges that could be filed. Everything from, you know, possible criminal behavior in Georgia all the way to right the other coast to Arizona. So the fact that Bowers last night told our colleague Caitlin Collins that he had spoken with investigators, it's significant because it's a reminder of just how many people they have spoken with, just how much work they have to do. And it's notable that he told her, he revealed that in the course of this interview with the FBI, he talked about a phone call that he had with former President Trump and Rudy Giuliani, and then another call he received from former President Trump. And Jake, one of the questions I get most frequently about the January 6th probe is, will former president be charged? At this point, we just don't know. What we do know from our reporting is it looks like charges could be coming in the near future. But we also know there are still some significant witnesses who have had been in contact with a special counsel but have not come in yet. So it appears they still have work to do. All right, clock's ticking for Jack Smith, though, I have to say. It is. Carlos Suarez and Paula Reed, thanks to both of you. Turning to our world lead now, wigs, gold, guns, fake passports, and a warlord in hiding. Shocking developments today in the saga of Yevgeny Prigozhin and his private mercenary Wagner Army after its short-lived mutiny against Putin in Russia almost two weeks ago. Most headlines coming from inside Belarus, where Prigozhin was supposedly supposed to have been in exile, but now Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko tells CNN that Prigozhin is in fact still in Russia, as Russian state media covers a raid on one of the Wagner chiefs' homes in St. Petersburg. CNN's Matthew Chance attended Lukashenko's press conference, where Chance's questions for the Belarusian leader made a lot of news. A rare meeting with the Belarusian leader and an extraordinary revelation on the whereabouts of Wagner, the Russian mercenaries he's meant to be sheltering. Despite earlier statements, neither its fighters nor its leader, he tells me, have taken up his offer of exile. As far as I am informed, as of this morning, the Wagner fighters are now stationed at their regular camps where they go for rotation to rest and recover from the front lines. In terms of Yevgeny Prigozhin, he is in St. Petersburg, or maybe this morning he would travel to Moscow or elsewhere, but he is not on the territory of Belarus now. It wasn't meant to be this way. Lukashenko's deal was how the Kremlin explained how Wagner's armed uprising last month had been brought to an early end. There was even talk of Prigozhin arriving in Belarus and of all charges against him being dropped. That deal now appears in doubt. And so the offer that you extended to Wagner and to Yevgeny Prigozhin has not been taken up. They are not in your country. Not yet. This will depend on the decision made by the Russian government and Wagner PMC. If they deem it necessary to locate a certain number of Wagner fighters in Belarus for rest and preparation, then I will keep my promise. But the Kremlin may have other plans. Russian state TV has for days been painting Prigozhin as a traitor and a criminal, now broadcasting these new images of a raid on his St. Petersburg property 
with police seizing weapons, cash and gold, even wigs for disguise and multiple passports under aliases. The Kremlin told CNN they won't comment on where Prigozhin is or whether new charges may be filed against him. But Lukashenko raised the disturbing possibility of Prigozhin being assassinated before insisting the Kremlin would never do it. What will happen to Prigozhin next? Well, in life, anything can happen. But if you think that Putin is so malicious and vindictive that he will do him in tomorrow, no, this won't happen. But clearly, the fate of Wagner and its leader is now in question. Just last week, these satellite images appeared to show a military base in Belarus being prepared for a possible influx of fighters. Lukashenko may now himself have got cold feet. Is part of this you rethinking the wisdom of inviting a battle-hardened, rebellious, mercenary group into your country? Are you concerned that that would have destabilized Belarus? I mean, the Russians thought it was, you know, it was safe to have them, but, you know, they were wrong. This is not a situation where I was lending Wagner a helping hand. This was reached in a process of negotiation. You know what was at stake. I made this decision at that time and I would stick to it. But I don't think Wagner would rise up and turn its guns against the Belarusian state. But for Belarus, Wagner's absence may yet be a blessing in disguise. I want to bring in Matthew Chance now live in Belarus. And Matthew, uh, great job at that press conference. Um, Lukashenko also downplayed his relationship with Prigozhin and said that Putin and Prigozhin were actually better friends. Why do you think he, he's changed his tune? He sounds so different than he did a few days ago. I know, it's, it's incredible. I mean, clearly, friendship with Evgeny Prigozhin has become less an asset and more of a liability. Uh, but it, remember, it was the supposed friendship between Prigozhin and Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus, that the Kremlin had initially said was the reason the two men could so easily do a deal. But, you know, today, Alexander Lukashenko was saying, look, you know, throwing his hands up, saying, look, it's Putin knows Prigozhin much better than I do. They've known each other for 30 years. And so he's really trying to put some distance between him and the Wagner leader. Yeah, again, because it's become a liability uh, to, to be in good relations with him. And Lukashenko also told you that he doesn't have any regrets about the war in Ukraine because he, quote, did not take part in this process. But he's been helping the Russians all, all the time. How was he able to justify that? Yeah, no, he didn't. He didn't like that question that I, I threw at him um, about the fact that so many people have been killed in Ukraine, so many cities destroyed. And of course, it was Belarus that has allowed its territory to be used as a staging ground, first initially in the assault on Kiev, the Ukrainian capital. But since then as well, missile strikes from uh, Russian forces in bases inside Belarus. He said he didn't regret it. He said he didn't even feel responsible for it because it wasn't his decision, which was a, a strange admission uh, for somebody who's supposed to be the president of a sovereign nation to basically say, look, I didn't have any choice. But I think that's the reality of the relationship between Belarus and Russia right now. All right, Matthew Chance in Belarus, great work. Thank you so much. How long will the U.S. be on the sidelines of Russia's war against Ukraine? My next guest could be the decision maker, Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, presidential candidate. He's in studio. We're going to get into that. 
Plus, I'll get his take on the main GOP challenger, Donald Trump. Stay with us. We're back with our law and justice lead, Donald Trump launching new unhinged attacks on special counsel Jack Smith, the prosecutor who's charged him with 31 federal crimes, including mishandling classified documents and obstruction of justice. Joining us now to discuss Republican presidential candidate and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. And uh, Governor, you served, as you well know, as U.S. attorney uh, for New Jersey on his Truth Social website. Uh, Mr. Trump is now calling special uh, counsel Jack Smith a, quote, deranged man who, quote, looks like a crackhead beyond the propriety of of that. From a legal point of view, do statements like that affect the case? No, I mean, not really. I I think, you know, the only argument you could make is that it potentially affects a jury pool who's in South Florida reading this stuff and thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Um, You know, I, I did a lot of drug cases when I was U.S. attorney, um, in New Jersey, I can guarantee people that there isn't one particular type of crackhead. Um, there's not <laughs> anyone who looks like a crackhead necessarily. Um, look, this is just what makes Donald Trump an unacceptable nominee for our party. Because he says things like this without any regard for truth or falsity, without any regard for the propriety of it. But even worse yet, what does that do to help anyone other than him? My argument all along has been this race in 2024 for Donald Trump is all about Donald Trump. It's not about the American people. He doesn't give a damn about yeah. the American people. Sources say both Trump and his indicted aide, Walt Nada, who appeared in court today, are, are convinced they should take their cases to trial. Their hope is for an acquittal because there will be a jury pool from South Florida. Florida is a state that Trump won. All you need is one juror. Um, what do you make of that strategy? Uh, look, it's a real roll of the dice because what happens then when you know you're guilty, and, and my suspicion is that Donald Trump knows he's guilty, um, you go and you take a case to trial, there will then be a presumption of a jail of jail time. And, and basically the way most U.S. attorneys' offices handle that is if you plead, you know, we can work with you in terms of whether you have to go to jail or not on some of the charges that he's talking about here. If you make the case go to trial... If you force us to go and put the witnesses on the stand and the judge to take the time and the jury to take the time and you're you're prosecuted and convicted, um, then it's almost certain that you would you would face jail. And so it's a huge roll of the dice for both of these guys um, to do that. And I think that's a lot of bluster right now. I think as this case gets closer, um, they may think differently. And on the jury, I think it's horrible to say that about a jury anywhere. Look, I was in New Jersey, one of the the bluest states sure. in America, right? Yeah. Um, but I never found a jury, and we did 130 political corruption cases during my seven years. I never found a jury, Jake, that was focused on politics. Because you weed them out during voir dire? Part of it. Yeah. But also part of it is when they take that oath and they sit in one of those grand federal courtrooms, I found that most citizens take that responsibility really seriously. And even if they have certain points of view or prejudices, we all do. Um, they, they really take it seriously when the judge says, you have to put that aside and judge this only based on the facts that are presented here in this courtroom. And I found that jurors that I ran into for seven years as U.S. attorney, I never saw one of them make what I thought was a political judgment. So they may be overestimating that as well. So one of the, one of the questions that I've had throughout this classified documents case is why? Why did he do this? 
And I've asked a lot of people who know Donald Trump well why they think it is. Um, you obviously know Donald Trump well. Here is a couple. Here are a couple theories I asked of former Secretary of Defense under Trump, Mark Esper. I want to get your reaction sure. after this. I've heard two different theories as to why he had these documents. One uh, from Stephanie Grisham, who said um, he just likes, you know, these are mine, and he's like a child with a toy. And one from Michael Cohen. He said he thought that Trump had these documents because he wanted to use them to further his own power or financial well-being in some way. Why do you think he held on to these documents and went to such lengths uh, to stop them, to prevent them from being turned over to the government? Yeah, look, I think both theories could be true and, and likely are true to some extent. I have to admit, I was kind of surprised that Esper said that uh, because the idea that he would use these secrets to further his own power or financial well-being is a, is a shocking thing for him to think. What do you think? I think it was purely ego. Um, I, I think, Jake, he could not and still cannot to this day deal with the fact that he's the only person outside the state of Delaware to ever lose to Joe Biden. And he wants to pretend he's still president. He takes these boxes with him. Like, he flies them up. They're in New Jersey now if he still had them. Mm-hmm. They'd be in New Jersey because they go on summer vacation with him. I mean, he wanted to continue to pretend he was president and show these things to people and say, look what I still have. Look what I still know. Oh, so it's all part of the kabuki about people telling him, oh, you're still president. You actually won that whole yes, thing. Yes, absolutely. I think that's it. And, and I will tell you that I've seen him with, it's not the first time also with boxes of documents. In 2016, when I was campaigning with him, his body guy at the time, Keith Schiller, would have a box, a banker's box of documents that would go everywhere with him when he was campaigning. And whenever he got on the plane, he would put that box of documents right next to Donald Trump on the plane. He would open them. Now, those documents from Trump were from Trump Tower mm. and were business related and also newspaper articles, whatever. And he, he wanted that box next to him immediately before we took off. So the, the, they're talking about the beautiful mind documents right. uh, that the, the staff is talking about. That he was obsessed about it. There's an element to that as well. And I saw it going all the way back to 2016. I want to uh, ask you about what's happening in Ukraine right now because you're running to be commander in chief, obviously. And your fellow Republican contender, Mike Pence, said on the Hugh Hewitt show yesterday that if Ukraine is defeated in the war, the U.S. will ultimately, he fears, have to send troops to fight Russia's further aggression. He seemed to be suggesting that Russia would go and the U.S. would need to defend fellow NATO allies, which is required by charter. Do you agree? Look, I don't think I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, but what I do think is that this has huge geopolitical implications, Jake. We have to make sure that we send a very clear message, not only to Russia, but quite frankly, they're my third concern in, in this trifecta. Hmm. China and Iran. China and Iran are both actively supporting Russia in this effort with both military hardware and cash to support Russia's effort in yeah, Ukraine. Those Iranian drones, for example. Yeah. Iranian drones are killing civilians every week in Ukraine. And if we do not stand with Ukraine and help them to win this war, the message that it sends to Iran is they can do whatever they want to do in the Middle East, including vis-a-vis Israel. It will change the way Saudi Arabia has to conduct itself in the Middle East because of freeing Iran up to do these things. And China will be looking voraciously at Taiwan. This is already a proxy war with China and Iran. We have to win that proxy war. Quite frankly, Russia's my third concern in all this. Very interesting. I also want to ask you about the man accused of carrying weapons outside the Obama family's Washington, D.C. home. We have the social media post from Donald Trump that prosecutors say that man used to find the address. Uh, Governor Christie, stay with me. We're going to get right into that after this quick break.
In our continued law and justice lead, federal prosecutors say they plan to bring felony charges against an armed man arrested with weapons in the neighborhood of former President Barack Obama. The suspect, Taylor Taranto, is a former U.S. Navy service member who also happens to be a January 6th defendant. How did he find Obama's house? Well, prosecutors are blaming another former president. A Justice Department memo says, quote, Former President Donald Trump posted what he claimed was the address of former President Barack Obama on the social media platform Truth Social. Taranto used his own Truth Social account to repost the address, unquote. The Justice Department here almost makes it sound like Trump blasted out the Google Maps location for the sake of creating chaos. Not to excuse in any way what happened, but the truth is a, a bit more complicated than that. Here is the context of what Trump did. He posted four pages from a 2017 conservative newsletter that praised Trump's first 100 days in office, selectively, of course, and in a passage suggesting that the Obamas were still in D.C. fighting against Trump, the second page of the newsletter included the exact home address of the Obamas' new $5 million mansion. Why they did that, did that I do not know. Prosecutors say Taranto reposted that page of the newsletter, writing, quote, got them surrounded, unquote, this Truth Social account, by the way, has the same username as Taranto's YouTube page. CNN was not able to confirm the identity. Now, here's what Taranto reportedly brought along with him to the Obama's neighborhood, the address of which he learned from that Trump posting, quote, I mean, not quote, but here's what he brought, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, these two firearms, and a machete. CNN's John Miller joins us now. Now, John, prosecutors are now considering felony charges against a suspect. Does that speak to the type of evidence they may have uncovered since you and I spoke yesterday? It does. And they're still working at some of that. So if you look at what Toronto's facing, there's the January 6th related charges, but then there's the weapons possession charges that come out of this arrest. But they're also looking, and this is with the Secret Service and the U.S. attorney, at possibly charging him with Title 18, Section 3056, which is threatening government officials under the protection of the Secret Service, which includes former presidents. And that is a serious felony charge as well. It carries a five-year sentence. All right, John Miller, thanks so much for the update. And Governor Christie is still with us. Um, Governor, what do you make of this? I mean, just empirically, President Trump put out in the world Barack Obama's home address and a Trump superfan with guns and a machete took that address, according to prosecutors, and went to the Obama's house and, according to prosecutors, to, to wreak havoc. Well, first of all, for Mr. Taranto, um, this seems to be a pattern that's now developing, involved in January 6th and now involved in this. And, and as for Donald Trump, I think the problem, again, is his conduct, which has no regard for anyone other than himself. Now, I don't know whether he really meant to put President Obama's address out there or not, or whether he was just so enamored with the newsletters, you know, extolling of his first 100 days, when, by the way, he, by the way, he fired former General Mike Flynn in the first 17 days yeah. um, for as National Security Advisor and, and, and had a Muslim ban that didn't go into effect and a number of other things. So I don't know exactly what was in that first 100-day uh, recitation. But my guess is he loved it so much he wanted to put it up there. But this is the problem with someone who doesn't think about this country and its citizens first. They wind up doing things like this, whether it was intentional or inadvertent. What it shows is a lack of responsibility a lack of accountability for what you're saying. It's like calling the, the special counsel a crackhead. Mm. It's like putting out a former president's address. You know, it, it is irresponsible conduct. And what I say to everybody who says, well, he's treated unfairly, 
the documents Casey brought on himself by refusing to give them back for 18 months after he was asked to do it. Yeah, you know, all the charges suggest, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. all the charges suggest that if he turned them over, he wouldn't have been charged with anything. He would never have been charged. I can guarantee you, as someone who did this for a living for seven years, if at any point prior to the search he had just voluntarily given them back, they would have walked away. All they wanted were the documents back. They weren't looking to bring a case against Donald Trump, but he cannot help himself. And so these are the things he needs to be confronted with. And that's why, you know, in the race, Jake, why I think it's so important that we have these debates, why I, it's so important that he show up at the debates and the RNC well, he's to talk, make sure they do it. He's talking about not showing up. You bring that up because the next debate is next month. It's scheduled to be next month. Fox is doing it. And uh, Trump has said that uh, why would he even show up? He's so ahead in the polls. You know, everyone's just going to be attacking him. Why, uh, why even go? He, he should show up because he owes it to the Republican Party and the voters of the Republican Party to stand up and defend his record. Um, and, and if he thinks his record is so great, if those first hundred days are so laudable and everything he did is so defensible, well, then he should have no worries. Because if everything you did was correct, which is what he says, perfect, I think is the word he uses most of the time, um, then somebody like me or Mike Pence or Tim Scott or Nikki Haley will not be able to lay a glove on him during a debate. It's nothing they should be worried about. But people should go to chrischristie.com, donate to me, make sure I'm on that stage, because if I am, I'll raise those issues right to the president's face. Was January 6th and, and the buildup to it, the lies, was that the, the, the end of it for you? Uh, because I, I just wonder in an alternate universe where Donald Trump accepts his loss uh, to Joe Biden in 2020, spends the next whatever he has, month and a half, talking about the Abraham Accords, talking about Operation Warp Speed, which brought the vaccines, et cetera, and goes out with dignity. Again, and it's just, that's not what happened, and right. it's hard to imagine. But, it, but if he had done that, would he right now be cruising to, to uh, the nomination with nobody challenging him, really? It, it, would, be, it would be a much harder proposition. And I, to me, Jake, it was election night. Um, when you stand behind the seal of the President of the United States in the East Room of the White House and tell the American people that the election had been stolen, when you have no evidence to support that, just to, to assuage your own ego and your feelings of loss. Um, to me, that's when it was over. You cannot undercut our democracy in that way. And then everything he did thereafter led to January 6th. But January 6th started that night. If he had not said those things that night and continued to say them for the next 70 days, um, we, I, I absolutely believe we wouldn't have had January 6th. In the time we have remaining, and we obviously know that you, you are against Donald Trump um, getting the nomination. Tell us more about what you're running for, what you want to achieve. Well, Jake, look, I want us this country to do big things again. When you think about just the stuff we've been talking about today, this is such small bore stuff with the exception of Ukraine. It is such small things that they're dividing us and all the different um, things that are being put out there by Governor DeSantis and others, small issues. I want to stop the runaway inflation that we have in this country and get spending under control again in Washington, D.C. I want to absolutely revolutionize the educational system. We saw the test results nationwide that came out last week. Our children continue to do worse and worse compared to the rest of the world. They deserve better, and we spend so much money, we should get better. We need to revolutionize school choice in this country. We need to make sure that we bring our allies together around the world to improve everyone's economy, to improve our military strength, and to improve freedom around the world. Those are the big things that we've been fighting for over our, our entire existence as a country. And coming off July 4th, we should remember that when our leaders chose the big things at the revolution, the Civil War, World War II, and 
the evil empire, the Soviet Union, and Ronald Reagan. Every time we made sacrifices to go big, our country came out bigger, stronger, more influential, and freer. That's why I want to be president. Governor Chris Christie, good to see you again. Thanks for stopping by the studio. We appreciate you, it. Current President Joe Biden was on the road today pushing the idea of Bidenomics, insisting that the U.S. economy is going strong. There's strong evidence, evidence that the American people are not buying what he's selling. Stay with us. In our money lead today, President Joe Biden took his Bidenomics sales pitch to South Carolina, trying to change the poor perception of his handling of the economy among the American people. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez was there for President Biden's speech. Priscilla, do you think his message is getting through to people? Jake, President Biden bringing his Bidenomics sales pitch to South Carolina, a deep red state, but also one that revived his campaign in 2020. And while he was here, he touted his legislative accomplishments, including, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act and infrastructure law, and then ticked through the wins over the last few years, including $11 billion in manufacturing and clean energy in the state, also touting more manufacturing jobs and more investments generally into clean energy. And he also took a political swipe at Republicans in the state who voted to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act, which the administration says has been paying off. But of course, Bidenomics and the crux of it is on a strong economy. And on that front, the president recognized that it may be a tough sell. Take a listen. I'm not here to declare victory on the economy. I'm here to say we have a plan that's turning things around quickly, but we have a lot more work to do. So the president saying there that the plan is to turn things around quickly. But of course, two thirds of Americans disapprove of the president's handling of the economy. The president fanning out across the country, along with his top officials, to try to instill some confidence in voters. Jake. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, thank you so much with the president in West Columbia, South Carolina. Let's bring in Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, the national co-chair for President Biden's 2024 reelection campaign. Senator, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. So President Biden says the economy is strong, that his administration is spurring U.S. manufacturing and creating good paying jobs. That's not how the American people see it. In a recent CNN poll, 66 percent of Americans say they disapprove of the president's handling of the economy. Seventy six percent of Americans say that our current economic conditions are poor. Uh, obviously, some of the factors driving this is the cost of living is up and people might feel that the president's out of touch with the American people on the state of the economy. Well, Jake, the reality on the ground is that we are seeing the strongest job growth in decades. We have the lowest unemployment in 50 years. Just this week, the announcement that there were half a million new jobs created by the private sector in the month of June. Overall, 13 million jobs created by our private sector in the two and a half years President Biden's been in office. That's the strongest recovery of any advanced economy on Earth from the depths of the pandemic. And so, yes, there is a gap between the polling, the perception and the reality on the ground and in the daily lives of Americans. Look, if I were facing reelection, I'd prefer strong on the ground reality of great jobs and good opportunities and needing to communicate about it than the opposite, having a positive perception, but very weak numbers on the ground. President good. Biden is in South Carolina today because he and his cabinet and his supporters in Congress are fanning out across the country to engage Americans and to help inform them about exactly what he's gotten done 
in the bipartisan infrastructure law, mm -hmm. the Chips and Science Act, the growth in manufacturing. Jake, the news is really good on the job front. So the perception, obviously, uh, that, that he's weak on the economy is leading to high disapproval numbers for President Biden among the electorate in general. Among Democrats, uh, there's a problem, too. In a recent Fox poll, Robert Kennedy Jr., who's running against him for the Democratic nomination, Robert Kennedy Jr. polling at 17 percent, despite being a conspiracy theorist. Marianne Williamson is at 10 percent. Biden is obviously well in the lead at 64 percent, but still, that's, that's almost 30 percent of the vote not going to Biden. How do you explain this? Well, Jake, I'm confident that as Americans focus on the real choice in front of them, which will almost certainly between reelecting President Biden or reelecting former President Donald Trump, that the focus on that contest will be to the benefit of President Biden. He has a very strong record of governance. And folks, I think, will choose competence and positive progress over chaos and division. The ways in which former President Trump continues to behave, just releasing the address of former President Obama leading to a potential threat on his life, the recklessness of former President Trump, I think will end up making the overwhelming majority of Americans choose President Biden for the re-election in 2024. Let's turn to foreign affairs um, and the subject of wrongfully detained Americans overseas. Today, the Wall Street Journal wrote about the burdensome fines that these Americans can face after returning home. Quote, when Washington Post correspondent Jason Rezaian was released from Iran after 544 days of imprisonment, he said his welcome home came with bills of $20,000 for unpaid taxes, late payment penalties and interest. Now, you and Senator Mike Rounds have introduced a bill uh, to address this. Tell us about that. So the title of the bill, Jake, tells you everything you need to know. It's called the Stop Tax Penalties on American Hostages Act. Um, like you, I was flabbergasted when Jason Rezaian, a Washington Post reporter, uh, came to meet with me and told me that story, that upon returning for more than 500 days in an Iranian jail, he was greeted uh, with IRS tax penalties. And so Senator Mike Rounds and I, he's a good friend, a Republican senator, introduced a bipartisan bill. We are hoping we can pass it unanimously, because who would stand for the idea that someone who has been wrongfully detained, imprisoned, um, whether in Russia or Iran or North Korea or another place in the world, should come home and face a tax penalty because they were unable to pay their taxes while detained overseas. It does sound crazy. Uh, Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Coming up next, the record trend happening right now that has not been seen in at least 100,000 years, according to experts. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the Beehive is buzzing over problems with one of the most popular concert tours of the summer, why Beyonce canceled and postponed some of her upcoming shows. Plus, the FDA has just granted full approval to an experimental Alzheimer's drug that costs patients $26,000 a year. What approval could mean for the drug's cost and availability? And leading this hour, where in the world is Russian warlord Yevgeny Prigozhin? Almost two weeks after his Wagner army's failed mutiny in Russia, Belarus's leader tells CNN that Prigozhin is actually still in Russia, not in Belarus. Listen to his stunning answer when asked about Prigozhin's whereabouts by CNN's Matthew Chance today. 
he is in St. Petersburg. Or maybe this morning he would travel to Moscow or elsewhere. But he is not on the territory of Belarus now. Now, the purported deal to end the mutiny appears to be in question. Meanwhile, Russian state media published pictures of a raid on Prigozhin's St. Petersburg residence, where they say disguises, including wigs, plus of stacks of cash and gold and guns were recovered. Let's get right to CNN's Melissa Bell. Melissa, what more do we know about the timing of this raid and the accuracy of what Russia's state media is reporting? Well, the pictures themselves, Jake, are quite extraordinary. You see the inside of Evgeny Prigozhin's home, uh, the garish uh, interior, the stuffed alligator, the weapons, lots of ammunition, lots of guns. And the commentary from the state media is interesting as well, specifying that this is a raid happening on behalf of agents from the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the investigative committee, that this is part of a criminal investigation and that all that has been seized, the cash, the weapons, will now be held as part of evidence in a criminal trial. An outrage as well. This is, again, uh, designed to speak to the Russian people, outraged at the helicopter in the backyard, asking, do you have that at home uh, as well? No, of course you don't. Uh, Really insisting in a very disparaging way on the way that Evgeny Prigozhin lived. For us, from the outside, that have been hoping for an insight into what Wagner was for all of these years, suddenly we see how the man himself has been living. And yet, of course, no sign of the man himself. Even as we had that video released, uh, the timing also of what we heard from Alexander, Alexander Lukashenko today, the Putin ally, remember, who had offered refuge to Evgeny Prigozhin. The idea was, Jake, that as part of this deal, it wasn't just Prigozhin who would stay in Belarus, it was his Wagner troops that would move, be moved there. We also heard from Lukashenko that the troops themselves, the Wagner mercenaries, are still, in fact, on the Russian territory in their bases. Melissa, Prigozhin is obviously a vicious warlord, and, and he led an armed mutiny against Russia. So I'm not expressing sympathy for him, but experts say uh, Russian authorities have a pattern of fabricating criminal cases against the Kremlin's challengers. You know, just look at Navalny. Is there any indication that this raid is part of some sort of bogus effort to to entrap him? Certainly it has to be part, Jake, of an element of an effort to convince the Russian people that this is being pursued to discredit Evgeny Prigozhin himself. And yet what we also learned today from Alexander Lukashenko is that Prigozhin may be in St. Petersburg, may be on his way to Moscow. And what flight tracking uh, uh, websites suggest is that his planes have been going back and forth now. If he is indeed in Russia and going to and from Russia with impunity, that does suggest a certain weakness on the part of Russian authorities, on the part of the Kremlin. Insisting today, Lukashenko did, uh, that Vladimir Putin and Prigozhin went back some 30 years. It may be, Jake, that the criminal investigation is going on for purposes of uh, propaganda, showing that they are acting against him. But what analysts suggest is that... uh, Putin himself may have been convinced by the idea that Evgeny Prigozhin was actually, as part of that coup, targeting some of the leading generals that are involved in the war in Ukraine and may, in fact, uh, be allowing him home. Some Russian news websites suggesting that he may even have been able to get back some of his money, some of those weapons that have been seized. Of course, there are so many questions about the actual dependence of the Kremlin on this huge structure that was, that is Wagner, not just in Ukraine and Russia, but in Africa and the Middle East. Are they simply too dependent 
that they had to let him back and negotiate. For the time being, we've seen no, no sign of the man himself since the coup uh, happened and since we understood he'd gone back to Belarus. Jake. All right, Melissa Bell, thank you so much. A 21-year-old, a 95-year-old, and four others did not survive the night in Ukraine's far western city of Lviv after a Russian cruise missile obliterated an apartment building, according to Ukrainian officials. Dozens of others were hurt. CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports for us from Ukraine where a city relatively spared from the worst horrors of Putin's war is in shock and still sifting through the rubble. Even away from the front lines, nowhere in Ukraine is safe. This is the aftermath of a Russian attack in the western city of Lviv. A cruise missile struck a residential building overnight Thursday. Ages of the victims ranged from 21 to 95, including a World War II survivor. Authorities are calling it the most devastating attack on civilians in Lviv since the war began. The Russians say that they're bombing military objects, but they hit a peaceful house. People were sleeping, says Lviv resident Vera Lubin. How could they do it? World, help us. The nighttime attack smashed the roof and top floors of an apartment building and damaged several others. Ukraine says the attack was carried out by a Russian caliber missile a long-range hypersonic missile that carries a payload of a 1,000 pounds of high explosives. Caliber missiles are extremely accurate and have been used frequently in Russian attacks on Ukraine. Emergency workers and firefighters have been removing chunks of rubble from the blast site and have evacuated over 60 people so far. Standing atop the damaged buildings, they continued to sift through the rubble for any sign of life or death. The Ministry of Internal Affairs says as many as 10 bomb shelters were locked shut in Lviv when the attack happened. An investigation is ongoing to understand why. But considering the city's relative safety, the strike was probably a shock for many. In the early days of the war, the city served as a refuge for tens of thousands of Ukrainians fleeing Russian attacks. Given its proximity to the borders of Poland, a NATO member, many hoped they would be safer there. But as rescuers continued to clear the rubble and repair the damage, it's clear no place here is beyond Russia's reach. Now, the last time I was in Lviv, which was in late April, the bars and restaurants and cafes were full. There were a lot of people out and about enjoying the warm spring weather and perhaps savoring the feeling that they were far away from the front lines, that perhaps they were out of harm's way. That may no longer be the case. Jake? Yeah, ben Wiedemann in eastern Ukraine. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, the U.S. military says three Russian jets harassed U.S. drones over Syria yesterday, releasing video of the Russian pilots, quote, unprofessional maneuvers. An Air Force lieutenant general says the jets deployed parachute flares and engaged their afterburners, which burn extra fuel to quickly increase thrust, which interfered with the ability to safely operate the drones. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is at the Pentagon for us. Orrin, why were these U.S. drones and Russian fighter jets in the same airspace over Syria anyway? Jake, both the U.S. and Russia operate in Syria for two very different purposes. The U.S. is there 
as part of the coalition to defeat ISIS, while Russia's military is there basically to support the Assad regime. And because they're operating in the same airspace, there is supposed to be deconfliction protocols between the two militaries. The problem is, according to the U.S., Russia has increasingly, as of late, ignored those deconfliction protocols or simply approached U.S. military bases or, in one case, even tried to dogfight a U.S. aircraft. And the video you see now is but the latest example of what we're seeing. This is from yesterday over Syria, video from U.S. Air Force Central Command, where the Air Force says three MQ-9 Reaper drones that were taking part in a mission against ISIS were suddenly approached by three Russian fighter jets. But that's not all. The Russian fighter jets dropped parachute flares, what you saw as those essentially streaming uh, parachute objects right in front of the drones and forcing them to take evasive maneuvers. And one Russian fighter jet even lit its afterburner in front of a U.S. drone, forcing it again, making it difficult to operate there, Jake. And the U.S. is seeing more and more of this. Orrin, the Russians aren't just harassing the U.S. here with the drones. They're, they're also doing this to other countries, you say. It goes beyond that. Just today, the French uh, put out a statement of their own from their military, saying that two of their Rafale fighter jets were operating along the Iraq-Syria border when a Russian Su-35, an advanced Russian fighter jet, came and approached them, essentially in a non-professional manner, was the wording used on the official Twitter account of the Russian, uh, I'm sorry, of the French armed forces. They then say the Russians maneuvered to avoid escalating there, or rather the French maneuvered to avoid any sort of risk of an accident before that situation ended. But again, you see the Russians essentially trying to set a, a new normal here and pushing the boundaries of what should and can be done in a safe manner over Syria, Jake. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. He's carried Donald Trump's bags, and now he's pleading not guilty to hiding the former president's classified documents. That's next. Then, the latest saga in the feud between billionaires Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, the new accusations of cheating coming up. In our law and justice lead, third time's the charm. Walt Nada, an aide to former President Donald Trump, pleaded not guilty today to multiple counts related to the alleged mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. The first time Nada showed up in court, he did not have a lawyer. The second time, he missed his arraignment because his flight to Florida was canceled due to storms. But the third time was the charm indeed. Here to discuss CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, the former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Caitlin Collins, anchor of CNN's The Source, which premieres Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Ellie, Trump and Nada seem to remain close. Just last week, they were seen ordering cheesesteaks at Pat's, King of Steaks, in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, despite this bonding moment, and I don't really need you to weigh in on whether you like Pat's or Gino's better, how likely is it that Nada flips on Trump, do you think? Well, Jake, all indications are that Walt Nada has no intention on flipping on Donald Trump. The decision whether to cooperate is really all about loyalty. And if we sort of add it up, Walt Nada has been at Donald Trump's side literally for years now. He was his personal assistant, essentially. He spoke to the FBI. They tried to get him to flip. And not only did he not cooperate, he lied to the FBI. He's now charged with false statements for lying to the FBI to protect Donald Trump. His lawyers are being paid for by a pro-Trump committee, which is not illegal, but certainly makes it costly and difficult to cooperate. And even since the indictment dropped, Jake, they've obviously stayed side by side. The trip to Pat's is about as strong a statement of loyalty and camaraderie that you could possibly come up with. Caitlin, do you think there's any chance they don't take their cases to trial together? 
I mean, it seems unlikely. It remains to be seen what the legal strategy is going to be here. So I don't obviously want to get too far ahead of that because it's the Trump orbit. And as you know, Jake, it changes on a daily basis sometimes, especially when it comes to these legal decisions. I mean, they both showed up in Miami, as you were referencing earlier, for that first arraignment. And only Trump had a Florida-based attorney, which is what was required and why Walt Nauta was not arraigned and able to plead guilty until today. But it is notable just to look at the relationship between the two of them and to the question of whether or not Walt would eventually flip on the former president. They are so incredibly close. This is someone who inside the White House was his valet. He would often go and get the former president's Cokes, whatever his whatever he was, those kinds of tasks, essentially. And then Trump took him to Mar-a-Lago with him. And so I do think there is a strong sense of loyalty there between these two, because I've been talking to people who worked with Walt Nauta inside the West Wing about what that relationship was like. And so uh, clearly that's not going to change. I think also the idea of who's paying for the legal fees is incredibly significant here because we have seen the filings that show the super PAC is paying the firm that is representing Walt Nauta here. And so that is not to be underestimated as a major factor here, even though Walt did have that new Florida-based attorney with him today as well. And Ali, sources uh, say that Trump and Nauta are convinced that they should take the cases to trial and not plead out. Uh, Listen to what uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who's running against Trump, had to say about that uh, on our show last hour. If you make the case go to trial, if you force us to go and put the witnesses on the stand and the judge to take the time and the jury to take the time and you're you're prosecuted and convicted, um, then it's almost certain that you would you would face jail. And so it's a huge roll of the dice for both of these guys um, to do that. And I think that's a lot of bluster right now. I think as this case gets closer, um, they may think differently. Ellie, do you agree? I agree with a lot of what Governor Christie says. I think he was a very good prosecutor, one who I actually worked under when he was governor. I was prosecutor. But here's how I see it. I think the indictment is strong. I think the evidence is straightforward. But I also do not see a world in which Donald Trump enters a federal felony guilty plea. If they go to trial, the big X factor is going to be the jury. Let's remember, this is a jury that's going to be drawn from South Florida, where Donald Trump is quite popular. And I heard Governor Christie also say, well, jurors are selected carefully. They're asked about their to put aside their personal beliefs, their political beliefs, and to decide the evidence just based on what they see in the courtroom, which most juries are good at doing. But this is Donald Trump. He is uniquely popular and unpopular, polarizing. And so I think that throws a real element of uncertainty into any trial. Kaylin, let's turn to the uh, federal investigation surrounding Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Um, you interviewed uh, Rusty Bowers uh, yesterday, the former Speaker of the House in Arizona, uh, who spoke to investigators. We just learned that the Arizona Secretary of State's office was subpoenaed as well. Um, I want to watch a little clip uh, of what Bowers told you uh, last night. Have you been subpoenaed by the special counsel? Uh, I ha- oh, That's a great question. I I'm hesitant to talk about any subpoenas, et cetera, but I have been interviewed by the FBI. What do you make of his answer in the grand scheme of the investigation? Well, it's notable because we didn't know that he had spoken to the special counsel's team. And of course, it's on top of the new reporting from The Washington Post last week that there was also this pressure campaign from Trump 
uh, on Governor Ducey, the Republican governor of Arizona at the time. And this is something that obviously uh, Rusty Bowers felt as well. And the fact that he did sit down and speak to the special counsel's team for, he said, about four hours and that he also gave his attorney a lot of documents of what, you know, Rudy Giuliani and these other attorneys were giving him that they claimed was evidence uh, of election fraud, which, of course, we know it wasn't. It just says speaks to the fact that Arizona has become a focus of Jack Smith's and he is still bringing in these high profile Republicans to talk to them. All right, Caitlin Collins, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Be sure to tune in for the official launch of Caitlin's brand new show. The Source with Caitlin Collins premieres Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. And our congratulations to Caitlin. Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis is now defending a campaign ad that's making headlines. Why is he defending it? That's next. In our health lead, new hope for the more than 6 million Americans living with Alzheimer's, the FDA just granted full approval to a drug that could slow the effects of early-onset Alzheimer's. With that approval also comes the opportunity for the drug to become more affordable, perhaps. Let's bring in CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, tell us more about how well this drug works. Well, you know, this is the first time, I'll tell you quickly, Jake, that we've had a full approval for an Alzheimer's drug in about two decades, just to give you some context here. So this is a pretty big deal in, in the world of Alzheimer's. Um, I'm going to tell you the, the specifics in terms of how well it works, but I want to tell you that it is a monoclonal antibody drug, something that we've all heard a lot about over the past few years. It's essentially an antibody that attacks these amyloid plaques in the brain. I think we have an image of this, but these amyloid plaques are what are oftentimes associated with Alzheimer's. So we have a pretty good idea of how, how it works, and it received accelerated approval back in January because of that mechanism. What it does specifically, it slows cognitive decline in people who have mild early onset Alzheimer's, early uh, signs of Alzheimer's disease. So it slows down how fast it progresses. It's, it's not a cure, Jake, and I want to be really clear on that, but it can keep someone independent for a longer period of time. It can keep someone able to recognize you know, family members and, and function, have their regular activities of daily life more functioning uh, for a longer time. That's essentially the, the, the most important thing about this drug. There are side effects as well. Uh, there were some concerns about brain swelling, brain bleeding. There were three patients who died in the initial trial, although that wasn't clear that it was related to the drug. But again, first time in a long time, you've had a full approval for a drug. Totally new class that's been approved, these monoclonal antibodies. And, you know, about 27% decline or, or slowing down of cognitive decline. So the step that the FDA took today, full approval of the drug, what does that change about access to the drug, which costs about $26,000 per patient per year? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- these are expensive drugs, uh, Jake. You know, $26,000, $26, I don't know if you can still hear me. Can All right. you still hear me? 26000 Keep going, Sanjay. $26,000 uh, for the, the drug. Median income of people who are older in this country, about $30,000. So a $26,000 drug, super expensive, obviously. With this full approval, uh, Medicare says they're going to now broadly sort of cover this drug. We'll see what that specifically means tangibly, but they've been waiting for this full approval to get uh, uh, broader coverage. 
and hopefully this does it for people. It's, it's expensive. Uh, it's for early uh, Alzheimer's. So, you know, out of the 6 million or so people who have Alzheimer's in this country, maybe a million people or so would qualify. Uh, close to $26,500 a drug. It's a lot of money, but Medicare says that uh, based on what they're seeing, uh, it could be worth it, broadly covering it. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. One of the Republican presidential candidates is using chat GPT to answer voters' questions. Is that a good idea or a horrible idea? Stay with us. Our 2024 lead. You hear that? The exciting uh, CNN election night music. I like it. I like it. Uh, so... Let's get to business. Former Vice President Mike Pence is ticking off visits to a few more of Iowa's 99 counties with stops in the western part of the Hawkeye State. Today, CNN's Kyung La is in Missouri Valley, Iowa, traveling with the Pence campaign. And Kyung, a PAC supporting Pence, released a new ad today taking direct aim at his former boss, Donald Trump. Tell us about it. Because it's the PAC, Jake, we do see them taking a much tougher stance, specifically naming Trump. We're seeing images of the PAC saying that uh, Trump is shaking hands with Kim Jong-un, even calling him an apologist for dictators. Take a look. America doesn't stand with thugs and dictators. We confront them. Or at least we used to. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There can be no room in the leadership of the Republican Party for apologists for Putin. There can only be room for champions of freedom. And you just saw Pence reflecting much more, hearkening back to Ronald Reagan, something, Jake, we are hearing much more out here uh, in on the campaign trail, minus the direct attack on Trump. Jake. Wow, that's something. Uh, if Pence is not as direct as the PAC in taking aim at tr- uh, Trump, like my guest last hour, Governor Chris Christie, how does the campaign believe he's going to be able to chip away at Trump's lead in the polls? The, the PAC can't do it all. Yeah, the PAC cannot do it all. They understand that what they are doing is deploying sort of that pizza ranch strategy heading into the restaurants, the diners, the, the ice cream parlors, having small one-on-one meetings. Some of the, the groups that we've seen gathering this week for Mr. Pence have been about 50, 40 sometimes 30 people, and it's in these small settings that they feel that the persuasion campaign, that the real work goes in and will be successful. That is their strategy, trying to get Pence in front of small groups in order to win them over to convince them to caucus for him. All right, Ken Law in Missouri Valley, Iowa. Thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel. So, Jackie, that ad is interesting and also an interesting moment involving Pence on the campaign trail When a voter confronted Pence uh, about Trump's bogus claims about what Pence could have done to overturn the free and fair election. Um, And he said basically that uh, the former VP could have just sent the election results back to the states. Here's what uh, how Pence uh, handled it. Take a listen. You ever second guess yourself. That was a constitutional right that you had to send those votes back to the states. They did exactly what the Constitution of the United States required of me that day. I kept my oath. I'm sorry, ma'am, but that's actually what the Constitution says. No vice president in American history ever asserted the authority that you have been convinced that I had. But I want to tell you, with all due respect, I said before, I said when I announced President Trump was wrong about my authority that day, and he's still wrong. 
What do you make of that? I mean, therein lies the challenge of the Pence campaign, right there, that exchange. And I think we're all going to get used to him saying that a lot. And in, in, in an attempt to convince that voter and those sitting around her that perhaps they should give Mike Pence a chance. And whether that's persuasive or not, we'll have to see. But <clears throat> the thing about the Iowa caucuses, you change one mind, maybe they have a couple friends that they tell that, you know, Pence explained this to me. It can, it can be successful in a place like Iowa if he's able to make that case. Yeah, and, and obviously Vice President Pence is correct. He yes. did not have the right to do so. If he did, then Vice President Al Gore could have declared himself to be president back in, in 2001. But can it work, do you think? Well, here's what Mike Pence's team thinks. His senior advisor, Mark Short, talked to our reporters and said that they were confident when Republican voters hear his version that they think is different than the version they hear either from Donald Trump or from the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, that they'll understand he had no choice. It was the constitutional option. That was it. But he has the highest unfavorable numbers of any Republican running among Republican voters consistently. Pence does. Pence does. There's really only one reason for that. Like there's one outlier, you know, characteristic about Pence compared to the rest of the field. And it's this. It's January 6th. So, I mean, the evidence that this is hurting him is just very significant. He's just not, Pence just isn't where the base is. I mean, the base believes that Pence could have done something on January 6th. The base believes the election was stolen. And listening to Mike Pence talk about a muscular Ronald Reagan foreign policy, that's not where Republican voters are. It's just so odd watching him. It's weird because he's so disconnected from the Republican base. And meanwhile, uh, DeSantis, uh, their campaign, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, the war room for DeSantis's campaign released an ad last week that even many uh, Republicans and conservatives called homophobic, uh, attacking Trump for uh, being pro-LGBTQ. Um, and uh, in any case, uh, Florida Governor DeSantis was asked about that, and he, he defended it. Take a, take a listen. I think, you know, identifying uh, Donald Trump as really being a pioneer in injecting gender ideology into the mainstream where he was having men compete against women in his beauty pageants. I think that's totally fair game. First of all, um, fact check, he wasn't having men compete against women in his beauty pageants. He was asked if he would ever be willing, if there ever would be a day where he could envision a trans woman to, to participate. And he said, yes, I don't even know how many years ago that was. Um, but he certainly does not hold that position today. Anyway, what's your response? Well, first of all, this ad was so absurd and, and kind of crazy. And to the point, yes, it is homophobic. It is transphobic. And Ron, I'm not surprised that Ron DeSantis is doubling down. I mean, he doubled down with the policies that he has passed in Florida. I think the one interesting thing that we're not talking about is the fact that whether or not the majority of the Republican Party that's speaking on television or in rallies agrees with this and what Donald Trump says is the fact that the policies that are homophobic and transphobic is actually what the Republican Party is made up of. So whether or not DeSantis gets the nominee, nomination and becomes president or Donald Trump is reelected, this is actually where their party has gone when it comes to how they legislate. And that is what I'm even more concerned about and how we have to be paying attention to uh, this Republican primary because no matter how much we can laugh at that crazy ad, that's actually the way in which they're governing to double down on their commitment to take away LGBTQ rights in this country. You know, and one of the, I think it's Dave Weigel who made the argument that in 2016, Republicans tried to get uh, LGBTQ votes by attacking Muslims. Remember, Donald Trump said he would protect 
uh, gays and lesbians from being attacked, or gays, really, uh, by, by, from being attacked by Muslims. Mm-hmm. And today, and this is Weigel's uh, term, not mine, uh, he, they're actually trying to get uh, Muslim votes by using LGBTQ voters uh, as, as the boogeyman. Yeah, it's been, you might call it a bit of a shell game there. Often minority outreach on Republicans is accompanied, especially in the kind of Trumpy populist vein, by appealing to, we're going to protect you from some other minority group. And in this case, there's been a really interesting movement, including right here in the uh, D.C. area in Montgomery County of uh, Muslim parents who want opt-outs for uh, religious reasons uh, in schools on LGBT content, which is one of the causes that has become very prominent on the right. And Republicans, including some of the same conservative commentators who are often demonizing these same communities, have started to embrace them and see them as allies. And, you know... Some of these groups, you know, we, uh, Weigel, you mentioned, did a story on this. Everyone should check out on semaphore.com. You know, he was talking to some of these parent activists, and they're very well aware. You know, they're not naive about this. They all remember what it was like to live here after 9-11. But, you know, the, things are changing a little bit as it becomes less of a focus for the Republican Party. Very, very interesting. I want to uh, bring in um, this uh, news today. Very interesting. A super PAC supporting Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, who is running for Republican, the Republican presidential nomination, launched an AI chatbot that looks like Mayor Suarez and answers users' questions about his campaign. So we ask the bot why it thinks a mayor could be elected president. Here's part of the chatbot's response. Mayor Suarez's Miami model is a testament to his effective leadership and conservative principles. The Miami model is working, and it's time for Mayor Francis Suarez to bring it to the national stage. I mean, uh... That's better than uh, several members of Congress could have done, I have to say. But what do you make of it? I don't understand. <laughs> I, 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 I feel old. I just, I don't get that. I, I don't like it. But if you don't know, if voters don't know who he is to begin with, I mean, they're going to be like, who's, I just, I, I just don't know if that is the way to introduce yourself to new Voters. Well, it's like the Westworld politics. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, listen, we're laughing, and as the millennial here, it is really interesting to see this. But, you know, AI has popped up throughout this cycle, and AI has been used before. And so I I feel like these Republican candidates are trying to figure out what they can do with AI. But let's be mindful that ChatGPT has proven to be wrong on a lot of things. So they might need a good fact checker before they put another video. Not without risks. Any thoughts? You know, well, this is his brand. The one thing I'd be worried about if you're investing in AI, if you're an AI company, uh, Francis Suarez was all in on crypto this time a couple of years ago. <laughs> he even invented Miami coin, which uh, ended up crashing with the rest of cryptocurrencies. Uh, so hopefully, you know, he's, uh, he's making a better bet here on which technology is going to be the, the growth area. Well, let's hope so. Thanks to all. <laughs> the Beehive is all a buzz. One show canceled, two shows postponed. What is going on with Beyonce's summer tour? It's time for our pop culture lead. One of the summer's biggest concert series is already facing some serious hiccups before the tour even starts here in the United States in the last 24 hours. Two show dates for Beyonce's Renaissance tour suddenly changed and another show date had to be canceled. And now her fans, the so-called Beehive, they're buzzing and scrambling to find new tickets and to get their money back. CNN's Chloe Malas joins us now. Chloe, what exactly is going on? 
Jake, you're exactly right. So Beyonce was set to perform in Pittsburgh on August 3rd, but that show unfortunately has been canceled. I've reached out to Beyonce's team for comment and they haven't responded. So we don't exactly know why, but here is what the stadium tweeted. They wrote, due to production, logistics, and scheduling issues, unfortunately, the August 3rd Pittsburgh stop of the Renaissance World Tour will not be taking place. They go on to say that refunds will automatically be issued at the point of purchase. And if you have any questions or issues regarding your ticket order, please contact your point of purchase. But I do want to point out that the mayor of Pittsburgh, Ed Gainey, he took to Twitter and he said that they are deeply disappointed and that they actually had a whole thing planned for Beyonce and that they were going to dedicate the day to her and to honor her for all of her success and achievements. And he goes on to say that they are in touch with the promoter of the event in order to gain an understanding about what exactly happened and if there's any possibility that they can reschedule this and get her to Pittsburgh. But like you said, Jake, this isn't the only wrench uh, in the upcoming tour, which is going to kick off in a few days. They have postponed two shows, but they rescheduled those dates, one in Kansas City um, that was postponed about a month, and then the other in Seattle that was pushed back about 24 hours. Now, again, they have come out these venues and said, if you have a ticket to the Kansas City or the Seattle event, or if you're watching this right now and you're concerned about your ticket at one of these shows, they say that they will honor that. But obviously, Jake, not everybody might be able to make those other dates. But, you know, again, we've reached out to Beyonce and her team for comment. And I think it just goes to show you, though, that even a big star like Beyonce, whose tour has been acclaimed so far uh, internationally, that even she, too, can have uh, some issues. It's not always perfect, Jake. All right, Chloe Malas, thank you so much. Sticking with our popular culture lead, a new CNN original series called See It Loud, The History of Black Television premieres Sunday. It celebrates the creators who have made TV more reflective of the United States of America and brought black TV to life. The show and the series looks at the impact that this has had on American culture. Here's a preview. You know what time it is. When I think about the history of black television, I really think about progress. For the longest time, we were footnotes in history. It is so important for us to have African-American representation. Talk about things that nobody in this country was willing to have a discussion about. I was like, Martin, can you believe they call us icons? That was one of the first times I saw myself in the sci-fi genre. That show was so successful, it launched Bravo Network. We have Tyler Perry, who owns a studio. In 1950, you could have never have imagined it. This was an era to be as loud as possible and as black as possible. We are the story. And our next guest is someone who needs no introduction, but to a lot of us, we first met her as dance teacher Lydia Grant in the amazing 1980s TV series, Fame. You've got big dreams. You want fame. Well, fame costs. And right here is where you start paying in sweat. Joining us now, award-winning actress, director, producer, and choreographer, Debbie Allen. And Ms. Allen, I have to tell you, I could recite that line from memory, and I can't remember anything I learned in the 80s beyond that. Like, no Shakespeare, no poems, barely any math or science. But I could, you got big dreams, you want fame. I know that by by heart. What did did it mean to you playing uh, uh, Lydia in in that show? And and what do you, do you hear about it still from, from oldies like myself? Yeah, you know, it's amazing. I love that story. Uh, Jake, uh, fame is just 
a biggest part of my legacy. I keep doing things, but it always goes back to fame because we were a footprint that just took over the whole world. It just excited people. It inspired millions of people. And so many artists right now that are big time were inspired by the work that we did. And even Shonda Rhimes told me that it was her favorite show and she used to put on the leg warmers and do the routines. So I want to know, did you dance? I want to know. Did you dance too, Jake? I did, but not with leg warmers. Shonda, by the way, was a classmate of mine in college, so it's funny that you that, that you mention her. But Janet Jackson was that. Janet Jackson was on that show. I mean, I you know Mr. Sharofsky, yeah. uh, uh, Leon. But but I want to ask you, how does that show do you think compare to the the roles uh, or black led TV shows happening right now? Because obviously, the world uh, of uh, opportunity for black. Directors, actors, everything seems to have exploded in a great way. Well, we were kind of on the ground getting started. I mean, Fame wasn't a black show, but it it was so defined by a lot of the talent that was black and the talent behind the scenes that was black, myself included. I became a director on Fame. It was like going to film school for six years. I went into the vault and saw the old MGM movie, scripts and what I was doing was what they were doing and nobody taught me. I had to learn it and figure it out on my own. Fame was just an oasis of of uh, groundbreaking new talent and the idea of who we are as young people. It was about young people taking, you know, a real handle on their lives, being proactive about who they were. And the music and the dancing was just infectious. And I went to South Africa and they were actually doing fame. They were actually doing the same scripts and stories with African actors. I love that. I went to China and they were just embracing me. I went to India and it was like I was their guru. Amazing. It was just uh, television has that kind of power. Yeah. So we have a power with television, and that also brings a bit of responsibility, I would say. So, and and since then, as you alluded to, you've been not just in front of, but behind the camera for so many black-led TV shows, A Different World, Empire, Scandal, That's So Raven, Everybody Hates Chris, the list goes on. Um, But these shows were, they were entertaining, every one of them, but more, right? They they weren't just entertaining, They, they had a larger significance a larger significance and took on storylines and done with comedic flair. A different world was more powerful than anything. We took on politics, race, education, religion, you name it. And we were always what I called called into the principal's office. That's when I got called into the network to tell me, stop that. You're going to mess up our advertisers. (laughs) Uh, But we did shows about the, we, we satirized the presidential election. We did a show about voter registration when, uh, you know, Jesse Jackson was a possible candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination. It was a it's a show that still is so relevant. It needs to happen again. We all know that. And um, we tripled the enrollment of historically black colleges. Yeah, How about that. What was it? it was it was Hillman College, I think, instead of Spelman College. Hillman College on a different world. Debbie yes, Allen. It was Hillman instead of Howard, because I went to Howard. Right. And that was my. We were the first 
school to take over the A building. It was before Kent State. Well, Debbie Allen, we next time shocked. you're next time you're here in D.C. for a, for a Howard reunion, you let us know, and we'll, we'll have you back on the show. What an honor to I have will. you. Thank you so much. And be sure to tune in. The all-new CNN Thanks. original series, See It Loud, The History of Black Television, premieres Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, only here on CNN. Coming up, the fight is getting nastier. The company behind Facebook is facing a lawsuit for its brand-new social media app, Threads. Wait until you hear who's bringing on that legal threat. But first, here's CNN's Alex Marquardt. He's in for Wolf Blitzer with... What's next in the Situation Room? Alex, what do you got? Well, Jake, one of the things we're going to be looking at amid all this news coming out of Ukraine and Russia is the Biden administration appearing set to send Ukraine highly controversial cluster munitions. Uh, That announcement from the Biden administration expected to come tomorrow as part of a bigger aid package for Ukraine. We'll have that and a lot more news at the top of the hour right here in the Situation Room. This just in, and our tech lead, Twitter, is threatening to sue Meta over Meta's brand new site, Threads. It's a social media site. Twitter accuses Meta of hiring its former employees and saying they still have Twitter documents and electronic devices. Meta uh, is accused of using those employees to help create this new social media site, Threads. A Meta spokesman responded about Threads, saying, quote, No one on the Threads engineering team is a former Twitter employee. That's just not a thing, unquote. Meta says Threads has 30 million user signups in its first day today. And as of this afternoon, Threads was the number one free app in Apple's App Store. If you are looking for a summer read, I have a brand new thriller coming out Tuesday. It's called All the Demons Are Here. It's a wild ride through a bizarre era for our nation, the 1970s. It has Evil Knievel and Elvis, post-Watergate mistrust, cults, disco, the summer of Sam, UFOs, and much more. I'd be honored if you would check it out. You can pre-order it now. It comes out Tuesday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Threads, Blue Sky, if you have an invite. I'm back on the TikTok. All of it at Jake Tapper. Or you can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Alex Marquardt. He's in for Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.